0: All right, with that said, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. That should be easy to follow. Thankful for the guys at the Bible Project that put those together. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be landing, and we're going to spend uh, the next several months in this location as we study through uh, Paul's letter. As you guys make your way to Corinthians, if you're in uh, Acts or Romans, head right, let me just remind you some of the things that were mentioned on the video, but I want to highlight that the Apostle Paul planted this church in Acts chapter 18. And so as he's planted the church, he actually spent what well, we're told there some time. and What that actually equates to is some 18 months. This was the second longest stay for the Apostle Paul in any church. The only place he visited and then stayed longer was the church in Ephesus. Now, why is that important? Well, because as Paul gets word of what's taking place in Corinth, the issues that are happening, uh, these are very personal to him. And so he writes one of his most personal responses in all the gospel to this letter. And he writes this around 56 AD. So the reason we're here as we journey through the New Testament is after Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, likely this is Paul's next letter. So we're seeing him continue to write letters to these churches that he was a part of planting. And so Paul takes the issues that are happening there in Corinth uh, very personally. Now the city of Corinth uh, of itself was located in a a spot that was prime for trade in the Roman Empire. And what I mean by that, when this map pulls up in just a minute, you're going to see that Corinth is located in Greece in what's known as an isthmus. That's hard to say on a Sunday morning, but it's a narrow strip of land that's between two large bodies of water. Now, the part that made it so valuable in the Roman Empire is that as ships would sail, instead of going all the way around the southern tip of Greece, which was treacherous sailing, they would take a shortcut. They would sail into Corinth on one side through the Aegean Sea, and then they would physically take the ships, pick them up, and move them about a mile across this isthmus to the other side and place them in the Ionian Sea. It would save a tremendous amount of potential loss as well uh, as time. And so you can see that it was a very valuable uh, location. It also made, as we're going to see, them a very wealthy city. There was all kinds of trade and merchants. There were people there to, to spend money. There were a tremendous amount of sailors that would be uh, located and as you can imagine, it didn't take just a few hours to be able to move these ships from one ocean body to another ocean body. And so it was days, perhaps weeks, that these sailors were now in Corinth spending their hard-earned money as well as looking for some recreation. So what did they do with the free time they had? You can imagine uh, they they worshipped. Isn't that amazing? These sailors worshipped, but not the way we would traditionally think of worship. They worshipped one of the uh, gods or goddesses known to the Roman Empire, one in particular that held a place there in uh, Corinth was Aphrodite. And the temple of Aphrodite uh, stood ruling over this city, and every evening the temple priestesses would exit the temple of Aphrodite, and up to a thousand of these priestesses that were actually prostitutes. They would make their way down to the city and they would worship together. And so this is what is taking place. Now, I do want to back up to this picture that I put here on the screen. Uh, Many of you might say, why would you carry ships across this isthmus? Uh, Well, the reason is they tried to build a canal. Actually, Caesar Nero at this particular time tried to begin to build the canal, uh, but the problem was the extreme amounts of rock that had to be cut through. So for thousands of years, this work went undone until 1893. It took all the way until 1893 for the Corinthian Canal, which you can see in the picture today, allows ships to go from one side of the other. So back to the sailors. Now they're here, they're in this spot, they're worshiping with these temple priestesses. This is why uh, it was thought of in the ancient world that Corinth was very much like Las Vegas is for us today. That what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. All kinds of debauchery, all kinds of things taking place. In fact, the phrase, you live like a Corinthian, was given to people who lived a very flamboyant and luxurious, in fact, uh, morally questionable lifestyle. So this is what is taking place in Corinth as Paul arrives in Acts chapter 18. And you might wonder, why on earth would God plant a church there? I mean, why would God send Paul, this great apostle to the Gentiles, to this place well what paul writes in romans chapter 5 verse 20 i think this makes it applicable even to us to this very day he says but where sin abounded grace abounded much more where sin abounded in corinth god's grace was actually on an even bigger display and what he continues to say in romans 5 is so that sin reigned in death even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That all you can see is the sinfulness. And what God can see is he's going to pour out his grace upon these people and they're going to be a powerful and a vibrant church. And that's, in fact, what the Apostle Paul left as he exited from this church and went on about planting churches. Now, what happened is, following that, just months later, he begins to receive letters of the struggles, of the challenges that they're having. And so he writes this letter of 1 Corinthians to them to address the challenges that were coming up inside the Corinthian church, the things that were taking place. And for the first 11 chapters, what he's essentially doing is writing them a corrective letter. He's got a problem, he takes the problem on, he then gives them the correction for said problem. Now, chapters 12 through 16, Paul writes constructively to them. He's writing to them how they should live as they live out the gospel. This is what it should look like in your life as a New Testament believer. So all that to bring us to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. And so the very first thing we see in this letter is Paul identifying himself as the author. Now, why is that important? You might remember as we study through these letters, often the author would announce himself at the beginning because they're writing on these long scrolls. You don't want to read an entire 20-foot long scroll just to figure out who it is that's writing to you. So Paul makes it clear that he's the one doing the writing. And what we see is he is called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, in some of your Bibles, hopefully, the words uh, to be are actually italicized. And the reason that that's done is because the phrase to be isn't in the original Greek manuscript. The translators of the Bible thought it was easier to understand if they put the words to be in there. It would flow better. But in fact, if you take those words out, what Paul says is Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why is that necessary for him to address it right off the bat? That he is called an apostle, a sent one. The reason is because he's giving his position his position of authority. He knows he's going to have to share difficult things with them. And so he announces his position, and he announces how he received this position. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. It wasn't Paul's decision to be an apostle. The road to Damascus, Paul was called by God for this very thing. And why is that so important? Well, because, and I thought of this all on my own, um, when you have to tell people hard things, it's hard. It's difficult to tell people difficult things. And so as Paul's going to have to share hard things with them, difficulties that they're having in their life, he knows they're going to need to know who appointed him, who gave him this authority, and he's also going to need to be reminded of that himself. But it's important for Paul to reflect on, look, it's not just that I was called by God. You need to understand the authority I have in this spot, but he also needs to be reminded when it gets difficult when he's in a tight spot, when he doesn't want to have to have that difficult conversation, he can go back and reflect on the fact that, look, God, you called me. You chose me to speak into this person's life, into this spot. And so he's given this authority, even though it's going to be questioned by the Corinthians. What's fascinating here is Paul prophesies that they're going to question his authority. And how we know that is that if you turn to Second Corinthians, after they'd already received this letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 10, Paul, knowing they're going to question, how does Paul have authority in our life? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 10, he gets word back and he actually addresses it that the Corinthians were saying, his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. So they're receiving these letters of rebuke from Paul, of correction, and what they say is, well, his, his letters are weighty and powerful, but wait till he gets there. He's a short little guy. He's just a little man, and his speech is contemptible. He's not a great speaker, in fact. And so they're now criticizing Paul for his stature physically and his speech to them as an orator, to which Paul responds in verse 11, let such a person consider this, that we, what we are in word by letters when we were absent such we will be indeed when we are present. Uh, that's what you call a uh, jerk in a knot. The Apostle Paul says, look, how I'm addressing you in a letter, when I show up to you face to face, I'm going to address you the same way uh, right to your face. I'm going to spell this thing out. But he does all this in a very personal way because he loves these people. He knew them. He lived with them for 18 months. He spent significant time and investment with them. Now as we continue, he says, I've been called an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So who in the world is this guy, and why would Paul mention him in verse 1, chapter 1? Well, if you go back to the story in Acts chapter 18, back to uh, Paul planting this church in Corinth, he arrives there, and as he does in most places, when he arrives, he goes directly to the Jewish synagogue. Now, why did he go to the Jewish synagogue to share the gospel? Well, it's because they had the Hebrew Bible. They had the oracles of Scripture, and so he goes to the place where they should already know their Scripture, and he begins to share with them how Jesus is the Christ, how he's the Messiah. He begins to to exegete the text. He's showing them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah you're waiting on, and you can imagine how well they receive it. Uh, Not well at all. In fact, they kick Paul right out of the synagogue. And so he shook the dust off his feet and he went to the Gentiles with the gospel message. He goes to the house of a guy named Justice. Now, it just so happens though that um, Justice's house is located right next door to the synagogue. He goes right next door. He crosses the street and literally begins to share the gospel with Gentiles. And the Jews take exception to this in large part because many in the gathering who had heard the message, they begin to leave Judaism cross the street, and they want to hear what Paul's got to say about Jesus. They want to be saved. They want the, the gospel message. And so the leaders of the synagogue, they're incensed. They are upset. They are they are ticked off. And they go directly to the pro-council of this region of Achaia, a guy named Galio. He's the governor of this area. And they bring charges against him about Paul disrupting their law, how it's hurting their synagogue and their gathering, to which Galileo responds in verse 14 of Acts 18. He says, If this were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names of your own law, look to it yourself, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Galileo says, What are you talking about your crazy law? He kicks these guys right out. Not only does he kick him out of his office, but as he kicks him out, the Greeks take these guys, specifically the leader who had brought charges against Paul, and they proceed to beat him right there on the front steps of the proconsul's office. They give him a good old-fashioned Clark County beatdown. That's how it went for this guy, whose name, as you read, is Sosthenes. This was the guy that brought charges up against the apostle Paul that was so against what Paul was doing. He was, he was completely upset and his people watched him take this beating. They did nothing to stop it. Now you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and we see through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. This man who was so against the message of the gospel and ended up being saved, led to the Lord by the apostle Paul. And the reason I bring that up and highlight that is, as he opens this letter, what he's sharing with them is, yes, I have authority, I've been given by God to speak into your life, but what I can also show you is the power of a changed life. But if you've ever witnessed uh, miracles, I've got the opportunity to see some miraculous things happen. I mean, people being healed that I can hardly even explain. And it's, it's fantastic when God pours out his spirit like that. But in all the things that I've got the opportunity to see on multiple continents, um, I've never seen anything more impressive than a resurrected life. than someone changed from the inside out. That's a miracle that you cannot deny. You can't write enough books about that kind of thing. And this is what Paul is saying. Look, here's a miraculous changed life. I'm going to present him as a testimony to you. And this is a good reminder for these people who, as we're going to see through this letter as we study, I mean, they are tore up from the floor up. This church is jacked up from one end to the other. I mean, they're getting drunk at communion. There's some dude sleeping with his stepmom. I mean, it's a mess. What Paul's saying is, if you think that's a mess, you can't be too far gone for Jesus. You cannot be too far gone that he can't bring you back. He lists Sosthenes as an example of that. Now, Verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus our Lord, both theirs and ours. And so he addresses the church of God in Corinth. Notice he doesn't mention uh, the church of Woodlawn or the church of 18th Street or the church uh, of whatever location you want to bring up. He addresses the church of God which just so happens to be located in this city. Now, why is that important? Well, We we live in this county that has churches all over the place. All kinds of denominations, all types of different gatherings, and and for many of us, it's confusing. Like, why would they be here, and they be here? But what I want to share with you is that for all of them, I hope, I hope that they're a church of God first, before any kind of expression, above everything else, because what we see in Jesus is, all these different parts of the body, all these different expressions, and it doesn't make one group better or one group worse. It doesn't make one superior over another. It just makes them necessary. There's some of you that this is a way that God's Word can be open to you, that you can understand it, maybe for the first time ever, and He can speak to you in the way that we do this, but it doesn't make it the only way. It just makes us that much more necessary for the somebodies that call this home. But the important thing is, is that we're a church of God over anything and everything else. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Different expressions, but the same Jesus, you see. Now what he is doing with us and in our lives is that he is sanctifying us in Christ Jesus. The word sanctification literally means to set us Apart, but why are we being set apart? Well, two reasons that people were set apart in the Old Testament. The first relates to marriage: that that a wife, a bride, was set apart, sanctified for a husband. She was put uh, together, holy, set aside, so that they could have a beautiful relationship. And it was always to be a picture of Jesus and His Church, and this is us. We are set aside as His bride. We're being sanctified, cleansed from the inside out so that someday He can adorn us with jewels. He can give us a robe of righteousness. We are called to be the bride of Christ. But what else is shown in the Old Testament is as Moses was getting ready to anoint the, the uh, tools that would be used in the tabernacle, he set them aside, he sanctified them, and then he anointed them. That's always a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He anointed them for a specific purpose, and they were instruments for service. So too are we. As he sanctifies us, each of us have a different gifting. Yes, you have a gifting of some kind, a different gifting that we can use for his service, an instrument that might be used. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been set apart for his good works. Some of you might be the menorah. You might be a light. To those that, that are in the dark. Some of you might be that thing that they use to like poke the hot coals. Some of you do a good job of that, like <clears throat> I'm that poker thing. But either way, we've all been called, set apart, anointed for his service. And we are also called to be saints. Called. Again, that word, that phrase to be is in italics because it's not in the original text. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called saints many of you when you got here this morning you didn't feel like a saint maybe the way you acted before you got here indicated you were not a saint but that's not the way jesus sees it he sees you as a saint what is a saint by definition but a sinner saved by grace a sinner saved by the grace of jesus not our own works not what we could do with our hands the instrument of service yes but first we are a sinner saved by grace it's God's riches at Christ's expense that he poured out to set us apart in this way. Now we continue in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see a typical Pauline greeting. This is the way he would greet churches. He would say grace, and in the uh, Greek that is Keras. So if we were to come in this morning and speak Greek, we'd say charis. Everybody, that just means beautiful. Welcome in. It's a beautiful day out. So welcome, Karas. And he says then, and peace to you, which is a typical Hebrew greeting. Shalom. If you go with us in 2024 to Israel, that's how people will greet one another. Shalom, everybody. Bokertov, tov. Good morning. Shalom. And so Paul gives them this greeting, charis and shalom, a Greek greeting as well as a Hebrew greeting. And he does that intentionally because they were a diverse group they had diverse backgrounds and gifts and yet they were unified they were brought together by the power of the holy spirit and this is what god has called us to as an assembly where we have different giftings but we are called to be unified together and so he says grace and peace to you now as you see this in new testament letters uh, they're always also listed in this order it's always grace first and and then peace. And I believe there's two reasons specifically that God does that. Uh, First is spiritual. Here's the thing. If you want to experience the peace of God, you must first accept the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. If I don't accept his grace, I'm never going to experience his peace that passes all understanding. And so it's a spiritual reason why grace always comes before peace. The second is practical in your life. And it looks like this, that if you are struggling with peace in a situation, in a relationship, in a workplace, the question really comes back to, how are you doing with grace? Mercy is, giving, is not getting what you do deserve, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so if you desire to have peace in that spot, how are you first doing with grace? And yes, they've hurt you. Yes, they've wronged you. Yes, you might be in the right, and yet what they don't deserve is exactly what they need. They need grace. And as we exercise grace with one another, with the people in our life, what you'll find is a tremendous amount of peace that will take place. Now, we continue in verse 4, and I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. I believe, and this is just my own personal belief, so it's not in Scripture But as Paul was writing this, he couldn't help but have a little smile on his face because he's thinking, what am I thankful for with these Corinthians? I mean, I can't write to them and say, I'm so thankful for your righteousness because they were certainly not righteous. I can't thank them for uh, their faithfulness because they've struggled with their faith for sure. And so what he comes to is, uh, as I look at them, the thing I can be thankful for is the grace of God because that's the only way they're still going as a church. It's God's grace in their life. It, his grace is so abundant. It's clear, it's evident with how he's acting with them, because if not, he would have just wiped them out, if not for his grace. And so as Paul, no doubt, has a smile on his face, he says, you know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful for God's grace, which is evident in your life. He continues in verse 5, and he says, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, and all knowledge. You see, the, the Greeks here and the Jews in this church in Corinth, they've been given a tremendous amount of gifts. We're going to get to that when we get to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. The word gifts uh, can be translated a charisma. They had giftings that were spiritual, but they also had a tremendous amount of charisma. In fact, what Paul says here in verse 5 is that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance. They were great orators. They were tremendous public speakers. They've been given this by God. And Paul's acknowledging this in their life, that they could use it to share the gospel message. They were were tremendous orators. But he also says here in verse 5, and you've been given all knowledge, even as a testimony of Christ in verse 6. So he says, look, you've been given the ability to be able to speak, but you've also been given tremendous knowledge. The word has been opened up to you. You've been given all this knowledge. The issue for the Corinthians wasn't One of knowledge or the ability to share. But you guys have heard me say before that knowledge is not necessarily wisdom. One of the best examples uh, I've ever heard of this is uh, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that it doesn't belong in a fruit salad. Right? So that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. There are all kinds of people that have tremendous amounts of knowledge and yet they don't know how to apply it. This is the spot that these Corinthians are in. They weren't applying the knowledge that they've been given. Verse six, as we continue, even as the testimony of Christ Jesus was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he looked at their life, he said, look, it's evident God's grace has been poured out on you. He covered that in verse four. And as he looks at the gifts that they've been given by God. He's like, your gifts are amazing. And yet here's the issue when it comes to spiritual gifts in church. Is that so often we mistake spiritual gifts for spiritual maturity. That we look at someone who's a gifted teacher, or maybe they've been given the gift of healing, or the gift of prophecy, or perhaps the gift of administration. And you you look at them and you go, man, what a mature believer. But the gifts are not necessarily tied to spiritual maturity. If you got the opportunity to go to the movie Friday night, or if you get the chance to go to it soon, the Jesus Revolution movie, this is the, the issue for Lonnie Frisbee in the movie. It's that he had these tremendous spiritual gifts, but he didn't have the spiritual maturity to balance it out. And so what does spiritual maturity look like in a Christian life? Well, if you go to Galatians chapter 5, Thank you, Lord. We studied Galatians a few months back. Galatians chapter 5, verse 12. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, period. That's what the fruit is. It's how are you doing in love? And as you bite into love, as we take the fruit and we begin to consume it, it tastes like joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so when we want to measure of how we're doing in the love category, in the maturity category, we have to then ask ourselves, how am I doing with all these different flavors of love? Am I struggling with joy? Am I struggling with peace? or patience, or kindness, or goodness, or faithfulness, or gentleness, or self-control. It's a barometer for us to be able to see how we're doing in the category of love. It it allows us to be fruit inspectors. We're not called to judge people. We get all upset about uh, judgment. But what we are called is to be fruit inspectors. But the place that the fruit needs to be inspected first is right here, me. I am called to inspect my own life. And when I see that, yes, the Lord has gifted me, but I'm struggling with gentleness, struggling with self-control, struggling to be kind, I know that I've got a maturity issue that I need to work out. It doesn't necessarily affect my gifting, but it does affect spiritual maturity. And that's important for us to realize, especially if you've been involved in church and you've seen these kind of people completely flame out, or maybe you've been hurt by them, that it's a matter of love. That's what it all boils down to. Now, as we head down the home stretch back to 1 Corinthians, verse 8, he says, You're waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, but that you may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's this church in Corinth. They've got all these giftings, but they've struggled mightily in the category of love. They're not mature. They're muddling along in this thing and they're making a, a mockery of it. And you go, what well, what hope do they have? Here's the good news. God's promise is to see them through it. His promise is that they may be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not left them in a place where they can't be reconciled. In fact, what we studied last week in Hebrews 13. Verse 5 is that He will never leave you nor forsake you. And so it's a beautiful promise for anyone that's struggled in these areas. Now the question immediately comes up though, how do I know for sure? How do I know for sure He's not going to leave me or forsake me? I mean, I've gone pretty far in this whole uh, walk, or I've walked really far away. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do we know that you haven't gone too far? How do we know that you can't be brought back or that you can be brought back? Here's the verse that is key for all the rest of 1 Corinthians. God is faithful. He is faithful. It's not dependent upon my faithfulness or my lack of faithfulness. It's dependent upon Him, His faithfulness. What Psalm 73 says, Verse 23 says, is this, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. If you parents who have walked across the street with your kids, how many times has the kid said, Dad, Mom, let me hold your hand. And you say, okay, right? And you reach out and you take a hold of their hand, but then they try to run off. What happens is they don't go anywhere, do they? Because they were never really holding your hand. You were holding their hand the whole time. This is our relationship with Him. This is how we can rely on His faithfulness. He was holding us by His right hand. We thought we were hanging on to Jesus. I thought I was hanging on to God. But the reality is He was hanging on to you the entire time. He who calls us is faithful. And He calls us here into uh, what we read as fellowship. The word in the Greek is beautiful. It's koinonia. It, It can also be translated communion. We are called into fellowship, into communion with him. And who is the him in this spot? But fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, his name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. That's his mission. The reason he came, the reason he gave his life is so that we can have salvation, so that we can be reconnected with God, this link that was broken. We can be reconnected with him. He is the, the Christ, the Mashiach in Hebrew, the anointed one is what it means. And in the Old Testament, they would anoint three different positions they would anoint kings and priests and prophets. And here we see Jesus. He is the king, he is our priest, he is our prophet. He's the only one to hold all three of these offices. He is the anointed one. And then lastly, he is our Lord in Hebrew. The word is Adonai. It means master. That is his title. And this is the area that we struggle the most. That for many of us, we're good with Jesus being our Savior. Hey, I need a Savior. I know I'm messed up. I'm excited about Yeshua. And I'm so thankful for his three-in-one position. He's my king, my priest, my prophet. Yay, Jesus. That's exciting. If you're going to have a Savior, you want him to have a a big-time position. But where we struggle is making Him our Lord. Am I willing to submit myself? Am I willing to lay my own will, my own desires at His feet and say, Lord, have Your way with me? Fully submitting to Him. Jesus knew this was a struggle, which is why in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, as He was speaking to a group of people gathered around Him, He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord? and you do not do the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you who he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when the flood arose and the streams beat vehemently against the house, it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like the man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. You see, our issue with submission is it's one of a structural nature. There's a foundational problem that we have. And oftentimes, where we're at is we'll submit pieces of our life. I'm going to give you this part over here, Lord, but I'm going to keep this to myself. Maybe it's our own selfish desires. Maybe it's, my own comforts that I don't want to give up, or maybe it's I don't feel good enough. I feel like, Lord, if you had this over here, there's no way you could possibly clean it up. But what we are going to see through this letter is that he can take things from the east to the west. He can cast our sins away. He can make us as good as new by submitting, not bits and pieces, but by submitting everything, by trusting him fully and completely. What 2 Samuel 22.47 says is this, The Lord lives. Praise to the rock. May God, the rock of my salvation, be exalted. The question for us to answer as we work through this letter to the Corinthians is, am I willing to submit? Am I willing to lay my will down? Am I willing to give him everything I have, even the parts that I'm not sure he wants? Am I willing to lay him at his feet and trust him that he is faithful? So, Father, we thank you. And we praise you for what will be a a practical journey, but also a spiritual one. I thank you that you use the practical things to make way for the spiritual to happen in our life. I, I thank you, Father, for the opportunities. Thank you, Lord, that's plural. The opportunities you give me over and over again to submit. I give a little, and then I take it back. I give a little, and then I want to pull it back. Thank you, Father, for your grace. In my life, thank you for the grace that you've shown in the lives of the people gathered here today. Thank you, Father, that you've called us into service. You've sanctified us and set us apart. Lord, help us be a group that is spiritually mature as well. Help us be a group that that knows how to love well. And it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Father, we submit this to you. We lay it at your feet. We don't know how to do it most of the time. But, Lord, we just give it over to you. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.